If you could stand, please, for the reading of Scripture. And open up to Psalm 73. We're going to be reading the whole chapter today in preparation for the sermon. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far off from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord again before we hear his holy inspired word. Lord God, we're dependent on you to be able to hear from you. So I ask that you would enable me, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to communicate these glorious truths of the psalmist here to the hearts of your people. Lord, give us ears to hear and bring to faith this day everyone listening who is yet outside of your saving grace. For Christ's sake, amen. Well, Christmas has come and gone, and as good as the season is, uh, um, along with um, all of the frills, uh, the arrival usually fails um, to match the expectation. It's back to work as usual, to life as usual. Um, you know, during Christmas, um, many... Even many pagans, garden variety pagans, um, run under the umbrella of, of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And they even give Jesus some props for a couple weeks in December. Only to go um, jump back into the cesspool, what I mentioned earlier, cesspool of relativism, pluralism, 
secularism, and we'll call it um, political correctism. Um, living in a society um, that is quickly abandoning, if it hasn't fully abandoned its Christian influence, followers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ um, often feel um, confused, intimidated, and frightened to where um, doubts begin to arise. And the road of compromise beckons. Come this way. As same-sex marriages are mainstreamed in media, TV, movies, books are written for children entitled, you know, you know Tommy has two mommies brainwashing agenda for children. One writer puts it like this. In our day, marriage is whatever we want it to be. Human life is defined by what we want it to be. Gender is a moving target. And we have plunged ourselves into a whirlpool of relativism and we're spiraling towards the drain. End of quote. Pretty good analysis. Now, because it's much easier to float downstream um, with culture than it is to swim against it, uh, many professing Christians um, are cowering and crumbling as they're being conformed to this world. Scripture tells us that there are only two paths in life, conformity and conviction. Look at Romans 12, with which we opened this morning. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will, what the will of God is, that, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That is the will of the one true God. The, the, the easy, um, well-traveled road, of course, is the road of conformity. The world knows, okay? That is, the unbelieving world knows those who conform. And they applaud them. They approve them. They celebrate them. That is, those who are willing to march to the drumbeat of the day and not to God's word. They'll cheer you on. They'll cheer you all day. The conformers, that is, to, to the heart of the conformer, truth now becomes an elastic concept. Truth is no longer absolute. And they begin to adopt the rhetoric of the day. Danger. Now, the other road less traveled, of course, is the road of conviction. That is the way of transforming mind renewal. You know how often I have to renew my mind? Hello? Every day. Every day I must renew my mind according to the revelation of God. That is his word, the Bible. Now, that can be a lonely road. But on that road is the one who makes a difference. You see, on that road stands the word. Jesus is the word. He is the truth. He is the life. And, and he himself, he is the way. A few weeks ago, um, I preached a message out of Hebrews chapter 3 with regard to the warning of apostasy. And I made mention of how many one-time professing Christians I know who at one point in time had good theology. They perhaps were raised with it, but, but they crumbled when life 
and culture began to push against it. Fearing the reproach of men, being scolded by culture, and dismayed at the revilings of men. Is that anything new, beloved? No, it is not. Look at the words of Isaiah the prophet. Chapter 51, verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men. Nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment. And the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever my salvation to all generations. You know, Jonathan Edwards preached 30 sermons on that verse, verse 8. <laughs> 30. Why? Because appearances throw us off. In Isaiah's day, appearances throw us off. In Jonathan Edwards' day, and appearances throw us off in our day. They cause us to stumble. They cause us to falter. They cause us to recoil. So Christians, they, they watch and they listen, and when they be, begin to adapt to worldly wisdom, their feet begin to slip out from solid ground. As they see the world thrive, as they see the wicked prosper, because after all, they seem to be calling the shots. They're the shot callers. They tell us what's popular. They tell us what's cool. They tell us who's cool. And at the cost of being ostracized, for some professing Christians, it's just too much. So off they slide. Some into apostasy. This morning, we eavesdrop on one of the leaders of temple worship in Israel, um, spoken about in the book of Chronicles. This is one of 11 psalms that bear the name Asaph. Who asks, why is it the wicked seem to proper, prosper when God's people seem to take it on the chin? What's up? Asaph has good theology. Asaph has very good theology, but life is pushing against his theology. It's pressing in. And he's blatantly honest about what's going on in his heart. Isn't that the beauty of the Psalms? They're blatantly honest. You know, John Calvin said with regard to the Psalms, the book of Psalms is says Calvin, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. An anatomy of all parts of the soul. Now, the Psalms are divided into five books. Psalm 1 is the first psalm of the first book. Psalm 73 is the first psalm of the third book. And the same Lord gives us both psalms. Psalm 1 is kind of like the Apostles' Creed of the Psalms. It's clear, and, and it provides for us concise statements about the righteous and the wicked, the believer and the unbeliever. And the conclusion is this, verse 6, Psalm 1. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The unbelievers, they will perish. Verse 4, Psalm 1, the wicked are like chaff, which the wind will drive away. We read Psalm 73, we get to verse 12, notice, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they have increased in wealth, saying in effect, it doesn't seem to me that the wicked are like chaff. 
says Asaph. Doesn't seem to me like they're being blown away by the wind. Something's off, says Asaph. Okay, now, before we look at Psalm 73, the theological key of understanding this particular psalm is the first verse. Look at it, verse 1. Truly, God is good to his people. Truly, God is good to Israel. Now, that verse provides us the doctrinal key to understanding everything else in this psalm. The fact that God is good. Because that truth is going to be profoundly tested by the psalmist's experience in this life. Asaph. So we hear the tension in verses 1 and 2. Notice, um, truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. In, In other words, those who are truly committed to God. They're truly committed to God. That's all that means. He says, that's my creed. That's my life. That's my focus. But, but I was troubled. I had difficulty holding on to that. Because what I saw didn't seem to support that God is always good to his people. So observation and experience didn't seem to jive with what I believe about God and what I've been told about God. It just doesn't fit, says Asaph, within his heart. This is stuff he's considering within. This is stuff he's thinking about. So Asaph says, It got so bad for him, he had about had it and nearly threw in the towel of of faith. And Psalm 73 is a record of that. Are you with me? Amen. Now, some people today teach that if we're truly committed to God, um, we'll never experience things in this life that are bad. It's kind of the modern evangelical message of the day. Sappy sentiment, sappy sentimental messages, so on. But, but the Bible, the Bible, the word of God, um, knows the tension that faith feels. It's very honest. And Asaph tells it like it is. Right here. God is good. Okay, God is good to his people, but verse two, as for me, oh man, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Asaph says God is good, and now he goes on to confess his own lack of goodness. Not God's goodness, but Asaph's goodness. And he admits his personal defilement because of impure thoughts. And he admits, for a time, my feet, man, my feet almost slipped. And we get the feel of it in verses 3 through 12. As he was considering the prosperity of the wicked. In verses 3 through 5, um, they seem to be immune from ordinary troubles. And I'll tell you, man, I was envious. Look at it. Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like mankind. Now, because of that, there's a certain arrogance about them in their manner. Notice verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace, 
The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. In verses 8 and 9, they begin to run their mouths. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades, parades through the earth. They seem to have it all together, healthy, wealthy, secure, successful, fat, happy. That's my observation, says Asaph. And they rule with their tongues by intimidation. You know what they do? You know what they do? They instill fear in others. You believe the Bible? Bigot? Hater? Is that what you hear today? If that's not what you hear today, you're not listening. Because that's what they're saying. They run their mouths. They try to intimidate. So here's the problem. The wicked often enjoy enjoying and, and flourishing and, and thriving. They're prosperous in this life. But those committed to God? Not so. Not from his perspective. How can God be said to be uniquely good to those who are committed to him when the wicked all around me prosper? They enjoy all of these blessings. Okay, or in our day, when, when relativism and, and pluralism is the hot button of the day, and only those, only those who grab the sail of cultural winds of doctrine and float along with them, will be applauded and accepted. That's pressure. That's the pressure of our day. Therefore, verse 10, and now notice this is kind of a tricky verse. Therefore, his people, his people return to this place, and a water of abundance are drunk by them. That is, they draw my people to them and they drink it up. They drink up their words. That is, God's professing people are drawn by the magnetism of people who defy God. They get sucked right in. So the unbelieving world seems to gain a following. And there's this kind of discipleship movement after them and my people go and they drink it in they're duped friends the first step in falling away from god the first step in falling away from god is dissatisfaction with god discontentment and the fear of man. The fear of man. First step. Because the world, they, they have their own little philosophy. Look at verse 11. And they say, and they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with, with the most high? So notice, what does the world do? They, they revile God and they beguile man. Anything new, beloved? No. They insult the God of heaven and earth, and they try to entice the people of God. Now, they don't say God doesn't exist. That's just foolish. They don't say that. But they do say what God says doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And they try to neuter him. The world tries to neuter almighty God. They try to limit him in knowledge and in wisdom and in power. So they re resort to, you know, deism or dualism. You know, yeah, God's up there somewhere. He made everything. He kind of, you know, made it, you know, um, set the clock and stepped away. But he's not involved.
God is, they say, what you want him to be. God is who you say he is. You know, for so long as you have your emotional and psychological stability with this God in your mind, that's fine. But he's really not involved in this life. You see this? How does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? So this kind of confidence in the wicked can and has enticed Christians with very weak convictions. They get sucked right in. So here he sums it all up, verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they have increased in wealth. So he's envious, notice, he's envious of those who are not God's people. He's covetous of those who do not believe and trust in the one true God. Have you ever been, don't, don't answer this aloud, but consider for a moment. Have you ever been envious of the world? Covetous of the world, of people who defy and deny God? Probably. In some way. That's the temptation. Perhaps you've been tempted to think like that. I'll put it that way, tempted. So his point, verse 1, he definitely wants to, you, to know from out of the gate, God is good to his people. That is his upfront conclusion. He wants you to believe this. And then he goes on to share his heart, which is just, it's just amazing, the honesty. He confesses, I almost lost hold of that. I almost went under. God is good, yes, but man, I almost slipped. And then he takes us through uh, this painful experience and the cost of affirming that, that, that is that God is good. This is the trauma experienced in coming to that conclusion. It's kind of like Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. So Solomon the author of Ecclesiastes, vanity and vanity, all is vanity under the sun, S-U-N, under the sun. If you don't look past the sun, man, it's all vain. And the writer of Ecclesiastes sums it up like this. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. I have no delight. The conclusion of the whole matter, he says, is fear God and keep his commandments. This applies to every person, says Koaleth, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes. So, verses 13 and 14, notice, are, are opposed to his belief of verse 1. So here now you see an intensified focus on self. Is that not dangerous, friends? To be intensely focused in on self there's only one way to go man <laughs> either backwards or down <laughs> verse 13 notice now listen carefully surely in vain speaking of vanity surely in vain i have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence for i have been stricken all day long and chastened Every morning. So, not only, beloved, is he envious of the wicked who prosper and, and confused by the fact that those people who are not committed to God experience all of these perceived blessings. He looks at his own life, notice, and he's bitter. He's bitter because of his circumstances. And he says, All of this commitment to God. All of my commitment, it hasn't done me any good. Self-pity hasn't done me any good. It's got me nothing. Look, I've washed my hands. I've kept watch over my heart. I've followed the way of truth and righteousness all in vain. In vain, I kept my heart pure. Is this unique to Asaph? 
No. It's not unique to Asaph. Psalm 37, verses 1, 7, and 8. Do not fret because of evildoers. It tends only to evil. Don't be envious. In other words, don't get fired up. Don't get hot. Don't get upset. Asaph says, this is where I went, Lord. (laughs) This is where I went. Look at verses 21 and 22. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you, Lord. Like a beast. What happens? Bitterness and envy take over. And then notice a sober reminder. Notice this now, verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus. See, this is all going on in his mind. Notice, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. The first thing he realizes, man, I cannot talk out loud like this. I can't go running my mouth like this. If I walk around with this being my assessment of life, I'm going to undermine the faith in my own generation. And I'm going to cause little ones in the faith to stumble. So he bites his tongue. He realizes broadcasting this cynicism will pollute and discourage them. So I'm better off if I just shut my mouth. Aren't we all? Friends, if you have difficulty with God, about God, if you have difficulty with God, about God, take it to God. Take it to God. Spill it there. Now, instead of that intense self-focus of verses 13 and 14, he's finally thinking about somebody else. (laughs) Those with big ears around him. You know, what, what would other believers think if they heard me talking like this? That's what he reasons within. It's very wise. Look, Christian friend, if you are troubled like this within... It's okay to go to another Christian. Make sure they're mature. If if you want to spill your guts about things like this that are going on in your mind and heart, go to someone who's mature in the Lord. Don't run your mouth around young believers. Oh, God. You know, like the dad who complains about God or things going on right in front of his children. Unwise. So don't parade your doubts. Take it to another brother, another sister who are mature in Christ so they can handle it because they're going to point you back to truth. They're not going to let you wallow in your self-misery. Hopefully not. I would have betrayed the generation of your children, he says. Verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. See, see what, what the psalmist is saying? You Look, I, I still haven't figured it out. I still don't have the answers for, for why what is happening to me is happening to me. But you know what? You know, you know it doesn't matter, verse 13. I've kept my heart clean, but it's all in vain. That's wah, wah, wah. Then... Insight is gained. Man, the the wicked, they're not made of Teflon after all. Hmm. Verse 18. Surely 
You set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Oh, hmm, wake-up call. Amen? Thank God for wake-up calls. For all of us. So suddenly he's reminded of what he already knew. We come to church. If you've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years and you come to church, are you necessarily going to hear something new? Probably not. But you're going to be reminded of what you already know. And you're built up in the what? Faith. The substance of things hoped for, right? Things aren't as they appear. Okay, now when he looked with his own eyes, verse 16, it was turmoil to me. But he regained clear sight, clear understanding, relief. How? Well, not from philosophizing about it. Not from going and sitting on some shrink's couch. Amen? How? How did it happen? Brother went back to church. Brother went to church. Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. You see the reformation in this man's mind and heart now taking shape? This is great reformation within the soul of a man. He went to church. He sat under God's word. He worshiped with God's people. And there, it suddenly dawns on him that the wicked, they are like chaff. And I've been buying into their program, threatened by their intimidation. And then he's brought back to the Apostles' Creed of the Psalms. God is good, Psalm 73, verse 1. God is good, and blessed indeed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man or woman who sits not in the seat of the scoffer. Who wants to set themselves in the seat of one who stands and scoffs against God. His delight, notice Psalm 1, his delight is in the word of God. The word of God. That is the doctrine of inspiration. The word of God. Verbal plenary inspiration. The, the, the Verbal means the words of scripture. Plenary means every word of scripture. See how important this is? That's why we preach verse by verse. It's every word of Scripture, verbal, plenary inspiration of God. See, any thought in our day that is in our culture of the, of the Word of God, the Bible being God-breathed, that's an eroded concept. That's gone. And some Christians begin to wonder within themselves, like Asaph, if Scripture truly does have all the answers. After all, man, we live in the 21st century, and things are so complex. Have you heard this? You can shake your heads if you've heard this. Have you thought this? Don't shake your head. So the temptation for most who are believers will not be to outright deny the Bible. Now, some will to their utter destruction. Greater is the condemnation for those who knew more, who were given more, Jesus said to the Pharisees. The temptation for most is much more subtle. That is to deny its teachings, that is some of its teachings. That is whatever doesn't fit right with me. Whatever, whatever, what does not sit right within my finite mind, 
my, my, or with my um, worldly, foolish conformity to this world. It doesn't sit right, so I'll just, we'll erase that part. But if it's helpful, if it's inspiring at certain times and within certain situations, you know, that is at certain topics of the word of God, well, I'll call that true. And then we place ourselves in authority over God's word rather than submit ourselves to its authority. The moment we think that the Bible is partly inspired, we're in dangerous waters, beloved. Dangerous territory. And I do mean all of Scripture. I don't care what culture says. Do you? Do you? So here it is in the worship service that suddenly it dawns on Asaph that the wicked, they never experienced true goodness. They may have bigger houses, bigger bank accounts, more cars, nicer stuff. And, you know, they do provide accepting applause. Right? They're the ones who clap for us when we go their way. Friends, this is but one reason that the corporate gathering of God's people together on every given Sunday is necessary. May we not forsake meeting together as has become the habit of some. Hebrews 10 verse 25. This is but one reason. Well, what about those Sundays when we feel we're not ready for worship. What if we've had a bad week and our hearts are cold? What if I had a week filled with failure? Anyone ever had a week filled with failure? I mean, besides me. Come on. Failure after failure, and then the idea of going to church on Sunday um, um, seems to be um, an act of futility, if not hypocrisy. So we listen to the lie and we stay home. That's the lie. We'll try again next week when my heart's right. That's dumb. Dumb. Stay home and, and I'll lick my wounds. But staying home and licking your wounds does not heal. It only causes, causes callous, calloused hearts. Go ahead and lick your wounds. You'll become calloused. And you'll find yourself home the next week and the next week and the next week. There are people in this church who haven't been here for weeks or months. And you may ask, well, why don't you go after them? I'm trying. They don't answer. You ever go knock on their door? I have. I knocked on the guy's door once on a Saturday. I rode my bicycle over there because there's no place to park over there. <laughs> hey, pastor. We're planning on seeing you tomorrow. Of course you were. Of course you were. Showed up. Disappeared again. That's dangerous. Faith withers. Strength weakens. Because pulling back, we deny ourselves the access to God's primary means of grace for his people, and that is that he sanctifies them by way of the, the word of God. The preaching of his word, the holy inspired scriptures. The troubled soul, my friends is meant for corporate worship. Asaph's soul was troubled. And he came to his senses when he went back to church. And he was reminded of the truth. It was then, there, that I discerned not only their end, but also my end. Oh, yeah. 
One commentator says this, quote, there is a mysterious chemistry that takes place in the public worship of God. You believe this? Do you roll your eyes at this? Sometimes I see people roll their eyes. You need to repent. <laughs> Quickly. So Asaph, notice, he seems to be saying, worshiping God, going by faith to sit under the word and to worship along with other sinners, saved by grace. Love that last part, don't you? Sinners, yep. <laughs> saved by grace, yes. Yes. Grace, what is that? Unmerited favor. Grace. Amen, thank you. Worshiping God with God's people can often lift more of your burdens than provide understanding of your burdens. You may not understand them, but he'll just, he'll just lift them many times. Here he is. Notice then verse 23. Nevertheless, oh, I'm continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, receive me where? To glory. Oh, I've come back to my senses. That's what's prepared for me. And I'm all tripped up about society that denies and defies God because of what they have. And because they won't applaud me, they'll mock me. Whom, I, wh wh whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. See, this brother's come back to his senses. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. They're like chaff being driven away by the wind. And I'm going to be envious of them? Verse 23, I'm securing God's grip, destined for God's glory. Verse 25, we see the sufficiency of God, the adequacy of God, because ultimately only God satisfies the soul. Friends, all of this was true all along. As Asaph struggled with this within, he concludes, look, this is all true all along. My emotions were all over the map. <laughs> you know, I watch the news and I, I get confused. Of course you do, because it's really not news. It's just nonsense. It's gibberish. It was true. Verse 1 was true all along. And he got tripped up with what he observes with his eyes and what he hears with his ears. And finally, verses 27 to 28 For behold, those who are far from you, they will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. What works? The gospel. The gospel. Good news. You've heard me say this a million times. Why is there good news? Because there's bad news. The bad news is that we're sinners, and we're going to die. And if you die in your sin, you'll stand before God, and he expects a record of sinless perfection. Guess what? You're done. You're doomed. You'll go to hell. Because he does not grade on a curve. But I'm a good person. How good? Compare yourself to best. The good news is he sent his son to live a holy, perfect, sinless life. God in the flesh, God incarnate, come down from heaven, condescending to the womb of a woman, born of a virgin, 
He grew up to be a man, commenced a public ministry, proclaiming himself as the only way to be saved from God's wrath because he would take that wrath on the cross and provide atonement for many, a ransom for many. How do I get in? Repent. Which means to change your mind, change all your foolish thinking, turn from your foolish thinking about God and about yourself being good enough to stand before God and embrace Jesus Christ by faith and you too shall be saved and be given this inheritance that Asaph rejoices in now that he's gone through the storm of folly and foolishness and he's come out the other end having sat under the word of God once again. But as for me, verse 28, the nearness of God is my good. You know, in in Philippians 4, verses 4 and 5, we read, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Amen, young man. Amen. Let your gentle spirit be known to all. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. The Lord is near. He's not talking about the second coming of Christ. Though that's true, his coming again is nearer than it's ever been. But here, this is the idea of his personal presence. He's not only near you, he's in you, believer. So this great psalm, beloved, is the story of a bitter and even despairing search by a believer in Israel long, long ago who has now is now he has been rewarded far beyond his expectations. Verse 24, with your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Guess what? Asaph is dead. He had some tumultuous times. He struggled along the way. But his confidence and trust wasn't in himself, it was in the Lord. And he is now with the Lord. Asaph is with the risen Christ. He's in glory. Amen? Amen. Remember that the next time you struggle. The next time you're tempted to buy into the rhetoric of the day, go to Psalm 73 and remember Asaph's struggle and his end, the glory of God in Christ Jesus alone. Because only in Christ is the best yet to truly come. Amen. Father, we do thank you for this reminder. We do thank you that scripture is so honest. I pray, Lord, for your people. I pray for myself that we will always be um, attuned to the words of scripture. We will test all things, all thinking, all philosophies, all principles common to man with the word of your truth, the Bible, and hold fast to that which is true forever. Help us, Lord, this new year to persevere by faith and remember our blessed hope through the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. Together we say, amen.